This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Welcome to Tuesday's episode. This is an important one. Send it to everyone you know. Today I am speaking with Soraya Chamali. I hope I'm saying that right. I think that I am. If her name sounds familiar, it is because I have talked about her book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, on Instagram quite a few times. I mentioned her in the reel and the TikTok where I showed, I think it was five books that every woman needs to read. You will have so many aha moments, as Oprah would say, when you're reading her book because you will relate to a lot of what she's saying and then you're going to get pissed off and be like, why do I always cry when I'm angry? That's one of the things that really struck me that she mentions in the book is like when women get angry, they tend to cry because that's the more socially acceptable reaction from a woman than to actually express anger in the way that a man would. And I was like, oh my God, that is so true. In this episode, we talk about rage and anger, specifically in motherhood, why as women we should be angry and we have a right to be angry and why anger expressed as actual anger is necessary We talk about how women are treated in the healthcare system versus men. I tell her a story that I've never told on the podcast about when I was in Italy working on a research project there and what the supervisor did in a meeting and how I was dead set on standing up for myself and for the rest of the people working on the study and I would not let it go. And everyone in my life was just like, just let it go. Like just, and in the moment I felt like maybe I am doing something wrong, but now looking back on it, like almost 10 years later, I am so happy that I did. And like, I handled it the way that I did. That whole story is another podcast episode. I will share my entire Italy experience, actually. I was there for three months. Soraya shares an incredible story that happened to her when she was on an airplane, and it really got us into the conversation of, like, as women, we are always so concerned about making everyone else around us comfortable at the expense of ourselves. And so in this situation, she did not do that. And I was like, oh my God, I could feel the anxiety like as she was telling me the story, picturing myself in her situation, even though she's totally in the right. And if it was a man that was 
doing what she was doing, we wouldn't even think twice about it. But as a woman, it's like, oh my God, you did what? It will just get you thinking. And then we end the episode with how we as parents can raise children that can express anger regardless of their gender. Because this all starts very early and girls are socialized to not express anger the way that it should be expressed. Soraya is an award-winning writer and activist whose work focuses on the role of gender in culture, politics, religion, and media. Again, her book is called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. And so without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the author of one of my favorite books. So the first question that I ask most guests is what their transition into motherhood was like. So I know you just said you have twins that are in college years. So most moms who listen likely have young children. So can you remember what it was like for you when you first had your kids? Yeah, you know, I I had a singleton and then twins and the thing that struck me the most was how little I knew about pregnancy and the isolation of motherhood. I was really, I, I was far from my family, so I anticipated some feelings of isolation. But taking care of babies, and I think it's more intense maybe if you have a lot of very young children at the same time, but I had three under three it's very lonely and it's really hard work and it's really, it's so overwhelming. And I don't, you know, at that time people really didn't talk about it much. And so I kind of made it part of my life's work to talk about all of those things, like the difficulties of pregnancy and the frightening aspects of childbearing and the really ultimately really more negative parts of all of it, because we just get such a huge cultural dose of like this fantasy. We, I I say we, we love motherhood, but we don't care so much about mothers. And it's the expectations. Like every time I go through a difficult moment or something difficult, when I really think about why it was so difficult for me or like why I was so stressed out or like anger, it's because my expectations were the opposite of what ended up happening. Yeah. And I think there's so much mythology around the women's natural inclination to nurture. Nurturing is exhausting. Nurturing takes careful thought Nurture, there's some instinct, obviously, because we clearly, you know, reproduce and, and we want to care for our offspring. But the idea that somehow if you're born with two X chromosomes, you're some kind of magical giving person who's 100% self-sacrificial, it, it's, it, it verges, it's like a mania in the culture. When your children were young, did you experience anger or feelings of rage? Because I know for me, like I'm 37 now, so I've, you know, lived 37 years and I find myself experiencing like overwhelming anger and rage in situations that on paper, if I were to explain it to someone, they would be like, 
What's really? wrong with you? you? You were that angry because you were trying to write an email and your son was like drawing on the, the whiteboard here. Like, so on paper, I think sometimes the emotions can seem like they're over the top. But yeah, I've never felt this kind of like anger, rage, frustration in certain situations until I became a mom. Did you experience the same? So I think if you had asked me if I was an angry person, I would have just laughed and said, no, I don't feel anger. I'm really not an angry person. But I think that we're so often socialized to divert, suppress, repress, ignore this feeling that we stop recognizing it. We stop recognizing the signs in our own body that are telling us, hey, maybe things are not going the way they need to. Maybe you're frustrated because you don't have intimate equality or you don't have reciprocity in your relationships or you don't have enough support or care from the society. And the it's some very microaggressive environment because on the one hand, we're constantly hearing about how important this job is. But on the other hand, we're constantly seeing how not important it seems to be in the world. Like, you know, if you are parenting, and I use that word, I actually want to use the word mothering, even when men are doing it, okay, to be very clear. When we use parenting, I think we hide the overwhelming reality that it's still women doing this work. And they're doing it with very little support, with very, with no sort of compensation for that, with all of the long-term lifelong costs that come with doing that work, right? And even men who then do this kind of work, which I will insist still is mothering, when they make the same sacrifices or when they, you know, make the same workplace decisions to step back because they need to or because they want flexibility, we don't appreciate how gendered it is. And I think that's important, but I'm sort of, I'm rambling, but I want to go back to your initial question, which is, did I feel anger? And I would say that I felt anger and I didn't realize it. And so what you're describing, which is this kind of flash of rage that seems out of proportion, I would argue is the result of an accumulation of things that we don't talk about or recognize that causes this disproportionate response. And it is a rage response because by the time a person feels rage, it's already dysfunctional, right? You've, it's already been that the anger has been unaddressed or is accumulating or is unnamed and that there's no powerful language of change associated with what you're feeling. Yeah, if I think back to, there's like a handful of moments where I'm like, oh, wow, I was so you almost feel like out of control. Like I'm good at on the outside to remain calm, like for my son so that he sees calm, but it's like this internal like battle. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And when I think about the events that led up to it, it's exactly what you're saying. It's like a buildup. And I always talk about how it's like we start off with this bucket of patience or like, you know, and then well, if you're slowly, lucky. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Some and of us don't have the patience. Some of us have buckets that are less full, but it's like, yeah, like things are getting picked and you're, 
you're like keeping face, you're keeping face, you're addressing things how you should and like go, go, go. And then all of a sudden something, like I said, like on paper, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but you're just like, that's it. I yeah, I can't take <laughs> anymore. Yeah. You know, I think this is important though, because I think we really don't talk about this enough. So first of all, we know that there is a gendered gap in heterosexual relationships between what men and women do. That gap is not as acute in same sex relationships. The roles are still gendered. So there are the tasks we associate with femininity and the tasks we associate with masculinity. But the imposition of those roles is less taken for granted when people are in same-sex or queer relationships, right? And there's a lot we can take from, from that if those of us who are in straight hetero relationships. But I think that among the things we don't talk about is that in parenting, even when men do more than the average to close that gap, the jobs they take on tend to be less stressful overall. And so it might be the difference between giving a child a bath at the end of the day, which can be fun, right? And making sure that a child with allergies doesn't die. Those are very different things, right? If you're a mom and you are taking care of young children, I don't, I don't have my book in front of me, but I cited some research. You're having regular throughout the day, like very regularly, constantly throughout the day, situations that could be deadly to a child. And you don't even think about it. You're just making sure the child doesn't hurt themselves, doesn't fall down the stairs, doesn't climb up the shelves, doesn't pull, you know, doesn't like pull a hot pot down. And these are very stressful things that are just part of our lives. And so the aggregation of that pressure goes unacknowledged for the most part. You know, and, and very often I think can cause resentment if someone's trying to negotiate, which is what it requires, with a partner, forget single parents, right? Because single parents have to do it all. Like we're, we haven't even talked about that. But that situation with single parents alters the dynamic then with children additionally. The work that moms do, for example, is different. The nature and intensity of that work is different if she's a single parent. But in, in, in situations where there are couples, negotiation is required. And the, there are lots of false equivalents in the negotiation. And I think we need to also not just address the amount of time, for example, to close disparities, but also the nature of the time spent. You mentioned in your book about how oftentimes women express their anger by crying and I was like, I can relate to that. And you say how we're more likely to acknowledge like, oh, I'm just frustrated. I'm well, irritated. Well, we minimize, right. Yes. We, yes. we are actively, as girls, encouraged to minimize those feelings. We can't say I'm livid. I'm appalled. I'm outraged. I'm so angry. I can't see straight. Instead, when we have these feelings... Other people use minimizing language that we then use. And then it becomes, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated. No, don't worry, I'll just do it, or I'm stressed. And so, you know, you can, ha you can get a group of women together and say, how are you? And they'll say, I'm tired, or I'm stressed. But very rarely will they say, I'm just so angry, I don't have enough help. 
I'm so tired all the time and it makes me angry. I'm unhealthy. I'm exhausted. You know, I used to make a joke that people would be like, how are you? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't really think on any given day I can brush my teeth and wash my hair on the same day. Like it would be nice if I could just have a little bit of time to maybe think straight and to, to do that. But, you know, I think we learn to minimize things and we also end up, and this was one of the reasons I wrote the book, hurting ourselves because we fold this suppression of this extremely strong emotion. It becomes material in our bodies, right? It actually affects our physical states, not just our emotional lives, but our physical well-being. I feel like in motherhood too, you're, I always talk about this example of, you know, a mom that's been breastfeeding for days, child not sleeping at all through the night. And instead of being honest about how difficult that is, oftentimes you'll see moms say things like, oh, well, at least I got all those extra snuggles in. You know what I mean? And it's like, I wish people would just acknowledge how difficult certain things are about, you know, becoming a mom and not sugarcoating it with what society kind of wants us to say. Right. And and I think it's interesting, too, because a lot of our sort of denigrating insults and mockery of women and their anger, right? So it's at every stage, there's a different one. So you might have a little girl who's a toddler, and you've probably seen videotapes where people are showing their their daughter have a, an anger attack in a store, and she's kicking and screaming, and it turns into this thing, look at this, you know, girl, isn't that funny? Isn't it cute? You know, this child is experiencing this intense emotion. And instead of the parent sitting down quietly and saying, why are you feeling this way? They're videotaping her. And they're sharing it where other people are making fun of this or saying, oh, my God, she's so cute, right? But a little girl quickly goes from being that child to being a hormonal teen, teen, right? Like if she's expressing anger because she's dealing with the dissonance of her experiences, she's dismissed through her hormones, right? And then she becomes like a high-maintenance bitch, and then she becomes a menopausal nag. And what we don't really talk about is that women have, they have these phases in life that are huge transitions. And so we go from childhood to adolescence to what I call the fertile years, whether you choose to have children or not, or can or not, and then potentially motherhood, and then menopause. And at each of those transitions, there is the experience of your body changing, your relationships changing, your appearance changing, society's view of you changing, your roles and responsibilities changing. And that causes chaos and instability, and it forces us to be adapting our identities in a constant way. And yet there's no recognition of that. And there's no recognition of the fact that it causes us to be angry because there's so little recognition or conversation or acknowledgement of the difficulties of those transitions.
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Lil Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. In your book, you talked about there was a part in the motherhood chapter about the silence of Well, in that chapter, you were talking about pregnancy and then labor and delivery. And also infertility. Like you said, it's these major life transitions where there's all these things going on, all these changes, but so many women remain silent about it. Do you think that's getting better as like the years pass? Like from when you were a young mom, like you had young children, you think it's getting better? I think that 
a lot of the work of feminism and there are lots of different feminisms, right? But I think a lot of that work has been to destigmatize women's experiences of menstruation, of menopause, of pregnancy, of infertility. You know, I, I think that it takes a it takes a relentless tide of stories and openness. And the way I describe it in the book is that these stories address a hermeneutic gap in public understanding about women's lives. All of these things that were tied to our bodies and frankly to shame of our bodies were shrouded in silence, right? You kept it to yourself. You didn't talk about it. You certainly didn't. I mean, the the rules and regulations about what you could and couldn't say in polite society or in media, I mean, you couldn't, some of the things that we we say and do and talk about, we can do it because of the media that's available to us now, because of social media, because of the shift away from gatekeeping media. You know, you couldn't publish some of the words that we use even because they were considered not family friendly. You know, if you talked about your period or you published a, a picture, God forbid, of red blood, like, you know, someone would shut it down before most people could see it. And so I think it's really important to understand the way these stories, the the importance of telling these stories. Wasn't it just a couple years ago where there was a, I don't know if it was like a pad brand or a tampon and they actually, because you know, in the commercials, they would do the blue Blue, blue blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I remember it was like this big deal. And this was not that long ago where it was like they actually showed a blood colored liquid on the commercial. And it's like, oh, my God. I know. They used blue, blue blood. Like, why? Yeah. You know? And yeah, it it just, yeah, makes us feel kind of like shame and like we can't share that. No. I, I remember, I remember even. This is so funny. This was maybe, I want to say 10, 12 years ago. And honestly, these are things that consciousness-raising feminists were doing in the 60s, right? But we've gone through wave after wave of backlash. But I remember having a conversation with someone who was horrified by the, the visual accessibility of tampons in a bathroom. And the, the, the conversation was, well, you know, you see toilet paper in a bathroom and nobody blinks. But to have a basket of tampons causes everybody's squirminess, right? Like, and, and it's the same thing about, it's the same thing as whether we make, and it's interesting because of course the term is sanitary products, whether we make sanitary products available in public bathrooms because of course we're so dirty for bleeding, right? And these, these are important discussions and changes. Like you really, you have to demystify before you can destigmatize, right? So you have to do it all together at the same time, all the time. After going through it, obviously before I had my son, I it wasn't something that I thought about, but the process of being pregnant and labor and delivery and then healthcare in postpartum, like if anything causes me rage, it's how terrible that is. And I talk to my husband about this all the time. I'm like, how are there not birthing centers that literally just cater to families? And like my sister just gave birth. 
she was in the hospital. She had a C-section. She was in the hospital for a couple nights. And she's like, I can't even sleep on the hospital bed. It is so terrible. And the noise. Yeah. They had to wheel her in a cot because that was better than the bed. I'm like, how? How is this happening? How is the aftercare for women so terrible? Well, this is what I mean. This is what I mean when I say we're all about motherhood, but really we have no fucks to give for moms. Like literally, you know, and in the United States, because of sort of the intersection of misogyny and white supremacy, we have an absurdly high maternal mortality rate. And it's primarily black women. Like everything you just described that in spades for black women, right? Like the care that they get or rather don't get in terms of prenatal, postnatal birth, like it's, it, it is staggering to think about. Right. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that we just kind of expect women to do the things and to sacrifice. And we also like, this has to do with pain, right? Like, one of the interesting things that I found in researching was that in emergency rooms, for example, women will wait on average 40 minutes longer to get their pain addressed. And then in some instances, women will be given sedatives instead of pain relievers. So a man and a woman with the same knee pain go in and the man will be given a pain reliever and the woman will be giving a sedative, which by the way is not a pain reliever. It just stops her from complaining or being angry and demanding, right? And so that wait time in the emergency room, which implicates all kinds of other things, some of it comes down to the fact that if a white guy goes into an emergency room and is angry, people respond But if a woman goes in and is angry, she gets punished, you know? And if a black woman goes in and gets angry, she might not just get punished by being made to wait longer, but like the police might be called because she's acting up. I mean, the layers and layers and layers of potential harm that are built into these stereotypes in a critical medical situation really can't be overstated. I knew that we were going to be talking and my sister was going through this situation a couple weeks ago. She was still pregnant at the time and like she was having terrible like complications, like severe sleep apnea. Like she was just not sleeping. It was high blood pressure and her and my mom and I were literally having the conversation of what's the best way to get the physicians to actually listen to what you're saying and take it seriously. Like, no, a decision has to be made. And I was like, I can't believe we're having this conversation of whether you should cry or you should be angry. Right. And and actually, it's interesting, right? Because we didn't really talk about this, but the thing about crying, right? So many of us learn that if we cry, people will pay attention because we'd rather a sad woman and a sick woman than an angry woman. Right. And it particularly in sort of very traditional family households or in heterosexual relationships, a a woman crying confirms gender norms. Right. Because, in fact, it's a buttress to certain forms of masculinity. When a woman cries, a man thinks, oh, I need to protect her or I need to, you know, do something. But if a woman's angry, that's actually claiming a very masculine prerogative. And so the response to that isn't, what does she need? What does she want? What can I do? 
it's to shut it down before even asking those questions. And so I think your question about how your sister should literally advocate for herself, present her, like she's acting in her own interest in self-defense. She needs help, right? So that's a legitimate question. We all have to thread that needle very carefully. When do I, how much effort goes into our attempts not to appear angry so that people will listen to us? I was just like, wow, I, I, I can't believe this is a conversation that we're having. Have you by chance seen the Amy Schumer documentary, Expecting Amy? It's really good. It follows her pregnancy. She had hyperemesis. So she was like throwing up all the time in and out of hospital. And so she has a quote in that documentary that I absolutely love. And it says, I don't resent being pregnant. I resent everyone who hasn't been honest. I resent the culture and how much women have to suck it the fuck up and act like everything is fine. And I thought you would love that quote too. I agree. It really makes people uncomfortable to be honest about it. They don't, it's literally like they want to block their ears and hum at you because it's too much information. If all of that's true, like if it's not fun, if we're not happy, you know, then what does that say about all the other things? Right? Like what does it say about the nature of relationships and identities and parenting and all of it? I also find it interesting when, because I talk a lot about all of this stuff on TikTok, I expect to get comments from men that are just like, oh, like your poor husband. I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. 100%. (laughs) All the time. All the time. Like, oh, your poor husband. Like, he must be miserable. I'm like, why? Because I talk openly about things and... All the time. Yeah. Oh, you must get that too. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I think I even wrote about it. It's so funny. So funny. People like, you know, they'll say to my husband, are you okay? My husband's like my biggest fan and we laugh about those comments all the time. But what's interesting to me is when it's other women who are, so like if I put out something that whatever, like a, a situation was difficult, oftentimes it's other women in the comments who are like, when I was raising my kids, like I had five kids and I had no help and it was fine. You know, and just trying to like shut down the narrative that like. Yeah. But you know, that's that. And I, I, I do try to address this consistently. Women are not born progressive feminists and men are not born retrograde conservatives. There are lots of very, very deeply conservative women who are just worlders. You know, they're going to, they're, they're going to defend their worldview because that is identity protective and psychologically comforting and doesn't rock the boat and doesn't, it's, uh, you know, it's very upsetting to think, what if everything I think I'm doing isn't going to result in the reward at the end that I have been led, you know, like, what if, what if things are random? Like this happens a lot in rape cases where women on a jury will be harder on a rape victim because the rape victim maybe did everything that she's supposed to do to protect herself, right? The idea is that rape victims deserve what they get because of the way they dressed or because they were exercising their freedom to public space or walking at night or having sex with someone that they chose, right? There's always a 
a rape myth that goes along with blaming the victim. But if the woman, in fact, has done all the things that we believe she should have, and yet was assaulted anyway, she must be lying. Because that idea that you can protect yourself based on your behavior or your clothes is a powerful one. If it's not true, that's pretty scary, right? Because in fact, anything can happen to you, to anybody, even if you try your hardest, right? And so, you know, sort of just world theories, which basically say the world is just, and if something bad happens to you, it's your fault. You must have done something to deserve it. That infuses all these conversations. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Do you think it's uncomfortable for some people to see a woman... Be really confident and be like, this is not okay and I deserve better and like I'm going to set these boundaries and because that's very much who I am. And so sometimes I, I think I make other people like viewing my content or listening to me speak or whatever, like uncomfortable. Oh, for sure. It's very, you know, you know, it's, we had, I had this conversation actually the other day with my family because we were somewhere and there was someone who was sharing his opinion about abortion and what he was saying made me very profoundly uncomfortable. But in saying what he was saying, he was creating a comfortable place for himself, right? He was, he, and, and this is someone that I love and know well and trust. So I responded by creating a comfortable place for myself which made everyone else extraordinarily uncomfortable. Like, 
I disagreed and I explained why. Can I ask what the comp, like what the... It was just, well, abortion is a whole other topic, but... Mm -hmm. Huge topic. I'm not a, I have for years, like many, many other people and like, you know, the, the entire reproductive justice and freedom movement is based on trying to get people understand the deficits of a choice framing of abortion, right? Like if, if your basis for arguing for abortion is choice, it's highly problematic and ultimately will fail us because first of all, it privileges the most powerful in the society. If you have a choice, you're already in a powerful position. Secondly, it's all very individualistic. So it erases the systemic harms and barriers to people who don't have access to power or proximity to power, which often means whiteness, for example, or wealth. You know, choice is very much centered on relatively affluent white women who have access to medical care, are not worried about reproductive justice in the same kind of ways that an impoverished woman somewhere in an environmentally unstable situation might be. And so we were sort of discussing that. And I, and, and I said, you know, I just, I'm trying to explain why choice is so problematic and why the idea that it's problematic is 35, 40 years old. This is not new, you know, because it may be new to you does not make it new. It just, just reflects how long it takes for people without power to have their voices heard but it does make people uncomfortable. And in fact, so much of what we're talking about has to do with whose emotional comfort matters. Women often will hide their anger because they're protecting the emotions of the people around them to great expense of, to themselves. And those people are oblivious to how much work goes into that. They're really genuinely oblivious. And in fact, I think many would be appalled to understand that's what's happening. But I think as girls, because we're learned to be other focused, like all these studies show how often we talk to girls in ways that ask them to ignore their own desires, needs, feelings, and put others first. You know, use your nice voice. We say that to girls at least three times more often than boys, for example. Use your nice voice or don't interrupt, you know, all these politeness norms, whereas we don't do the same thing with boys. If boys interrupt, we don't assume them to have the same level of self-control. We think that it's sometimes cute because they're telling a joke. There's rambunctiousness. There are all these masculine, linguistic, dominant traits that we deny girls because it's impolite. It's not feminine. I have never told this on the podcast before, but I had an experience. I went over to Italy to like head a research project when I was in my PhD. And the guy that I was there to work with, he was a professor. And it was just so different from like, I'm from Canada. My supervisor here, he was like my colleague. He like, we worked together. It was very, you know, and I went over there. And after two meetings with this man, I was like, this is not going to work because... (laughs) During one of the meetings, he literally wrote out, like he drew a hierarchy on a page and showed me where I was compared to him. 
And like, he just wanted to do things like with regard to authorship that were not like ethical. Like it was so bad. And I was not going to put up with it. And I was like fighting back. And I remember both my dad and my supervisor from Canada, I was having these conversations with them. Like, this is what's happening. Like, I'm not giving in. I'm not giving in and I'm not putting the authorship this way because it's not right, like based on ethics and how research works. And they just wanted me to like, just let it go, like just stop. And I was, I didn't. And to this day, and like, I was crying over it. Like it was a terrible situation because he did have like, you know, he was above me in that sense. Like I was there on a scholarship, like doing work for him and I never gave in. I never did the project. And like to this day, I'm so happy that I just like stood up to him. It's just sometimes, you know, sometimes, and this is one of those, I think, I think it's one of those situations where someone hearing it or responding to it thinks it was such a small thing. Why didn't you just let it go? Right. Just let it go. And I think that what happens is you get sick of letting things go. You're just like, again, you want me to, and this is, this is definitely like, when I was on book tour, I had this experience. I waited, I was waiting for a flight. I waited all day. It was postponed, postponed. Finally, we get on the plane after four hours in the airport waiting and we get on the plane and the plane takes off. And so when we're up in the air, I push my seat back because I'm very uncomfortable and my back is hurting. I've been carrying bags all day. And two flight attendants came over to me and said, would you mind putting your seat up? And I said, oh, I thought we were past the takeoff point. And they said, yes, but the man behind you is uncomfortable. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but I didn't move my seat. And this flight attendant said, we just thought it would be nice if you could put your seat up. And I said, it would be nice. And I didn't say anything else. And I said, but here's the thing. I'm super uncomfortable if I put my seat up, which means either I'm uncomfortable or he's uncomfortable. And the contract we entered when I bought the ticket meant that I could push this button and push my seat back. That's part of buying the ticket. And so I'm not moving my seat. I apologize, but you need to find some other remedy for your other customer. So they went away and then they came back and they said, you know, there's three empty seats just behind you on the right over here. And I said, oh, good, then he can sit there. Like, why do you want me to get up? Yeah, he's the one that's uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable if there are three empty seats literally opposite him. And they were mystified by my intransigence. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, okay, sound as polite and nice as you can, because clearly they're having a problem and I'm going to sound like the bitch. So I don't move my seat. I didn't even look back to see this person. I'm like, deal with him, not with me. And I was exceedingly polite. And just before the flight was about to land, these two come barreling down the aisle and make an announcement, sir, for your discomfort, we'd like to offer you a flight credit. Because he refused to leave his seat too. What? Yep. So they gave him money. So when I got off of the flight, I went up to the desk the ticket desk. And I said, I want to explain what happened here. I want to lodge a formal complaint. And the person at the desk was equally sort of mystified by my frustration with this. 
And it just so happened that I was making a speech the next night and I shared this as an example of one of the ways, minor, minor, but one of the ways that we expect women to be accommodating in very unequal measure. And it turned out that a woman, a senior executive at Qantas Airlines, where I was in Australia, she was in the room and she came up to me after and she said, I would like to use your example, please, because we've identified a real problem in that flight attendants think it's their job to make men comfortable. And I just think that's the way the world is built. And so when we make people uncomfortable, especially men, it's hard. People don't like it. That's such an incredible story. Well, I think we all have those stories if we think about them. And like in my day-to-day life, I'm very much someone that, as you were saying, I'm more concerned about making other people comfortable, you know, like, oh my God. And talk about like, okay, so I'm a woman, but I'm also Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you bump into someone at the store, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So sorry. So sorry. So like, sorry. Oh my God. It's like my number one word. I love that story. So to end, because it's mostly parents with young children listening, do you have advice for parents on how to raise children that can express anger in a healthy way, regardless of their gender? Sure. I mean, well, first of all, you're saying parents, I'm assuming moms are listening to you more. A couple of things. One, in retrospect, I did not do these things and wish I had. So I I write about that too. I write about the ways in which I was conveying societal norms that I disagreed with without realizing it, right? But I think kids will, kids have nothing better to do than watch you. So actually understanding your own relationship to your anger is super important because they're watching you regardless of what you say. So if you're not expressing yourself in a way that is healthy and effective, they're going to see that. They're going to learn from that. And so I think it's always incumbent upon us to be self-reflective, first of all. Secondly, they're watching your relationships. So if one parent is constantly subsuming themselves in order to make sure the other parent doesn't get angry or gets what they want, they're going to watch that too. So I do always think it's important to think about the nature of equality in an intimate relationship and how that affects emotional expression. Because if you can't talk about what makes you angry, it makes it extremely hard to have a truly intimate relationship, I think. Like, you have to be able to be open and to trust that the person you're with wants to know why you might be sad or unhappy or frustrated and wants to create an environment in which that's not true. And I think that's what's very hard for women, especially which is the possible risk of finding out that the people around them, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a coworker, just don't care. They don't care to reciprocate because then other decisions have to be made. Like it's a harsh reality to understand, for example, that a parent actually is narcissistic maybe, doesn't actually care what you need, right? Because you want to believe your parent loves you and will do the things that will help you. So I do think that there's a self-reflection and, and then the nature of relationships. And, and I think teaching children language, so recognize the emotion, give it a name. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm scared, especially boys. 
Boys don't get to be sad and scared the same way. Girls don't get to be angry. Boys don't get to be sad and scared. So make them understand that they have to, they have the right to feel all their emotions and that labeling those emotions and making meaning out of them is completely something they have the ability to do. And I think those conversations need to be overt. We can't just assume that kids are going to intuit these things from living in the house, for example. It's funny because yesterday my son brought one of his markers to school and he left it there. And then so yesterday he wanted to color and he's like, mommy, like I don't have my favorite, like the light green color. And I was like, oh, because you left it at school. And I was like, okay, so we're not going to bring our markers to school anymore because look, you left your favorite color there and now you're sad that it's at school and you don't have it at home. And I was like, oh, I just did something really good there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did though. Like, yeah. I think, I think you know, kids are, kids are little sponges. They're just here to learn. And if, if we can give them words to use, they'll use them, you know? And the thing is, by the time a kid is enraged, like an adult, by the time a kid is, you know, having a tantrum, you really have to say what accumulated to get to get to that point, right? If the child can express themselves in any number of other ways to say, you know, sometimes some kids want to, you know, they can draw if they can't, if they're not comfortable verbalizing. But I do think it helps to give them the tools to verbalize if they're able to. Or to give them alternatives, you know, to, to think quietly about what it is they want or what their feeling is trying to tell them. Because all these feelings exist for a reason. They're, they're trying to tell us something about our environments, about our relationships, and we should listen to them. And instead, unfortunately, we live in a culture that disparages emotion, right? Like, we're, we're taught to associate emotion with weakness and with femininity and with women, especially when compared to rationality, where everything we know about cognition and emotions, it really it does clarify the bankruptcy of that, of that comparison. So we should teach them, I think, to respect emotions. If a little girl is displaying anger, like what are the differences in how parents would typically respond to a little boy showing anger like outwardly versus a girl? So, you know, what happens with girls is that we make no distinction between anger, aggression, and assertiveness very often. Teachers and parents have biases so that if a girl, let's say a girl and a boy act in exactly the same way, it's very likely that a boy, again, might be called rambunctious or difficult right? But he'll be given a pass because we also have this double standard about self-control. We don't expect boys, which is bullshit. Little boys and little girls are both equally capable of self-control. And that's like multiple different cross-cultural, cross-country, you know, sort of studies show that, that that's the case, right? It's more the biases of the adults around them that cultivate a lack of control in boys, so if you look at preschool preparedness, for example, in the United States versus Korea, you will see different expectations about self-control. So little boys in Korea are, are more prepared for going to school than little boys in the United States, for example, because of the expectation that they can, in fact, manage themselves. And so that kind of comparison 
gives us a lot of insights. But girl, a girl who is assertive might be tone policed or worse if she's in school, if she's, for example, a young black girl, disciplined because her assertiveness is seen as aggression or anger. Whereas those are three very different things. You, you can be naturally sort of inherently quite, I'm quite an aggressive person, it turns out. In my nature, I have sort of high trait aggr- aggression. But that's not anger. I could be very aggressive and completely not angry. You know, I can be very angry and not aggressive, but we conflate those two, three things. And it's detrimental because an assertive girl who feels strongly about her ideas or her opinion might express those, but automatically the way she expresses herself, the response is hostility. You're not using that nice voice. You're not being polite. You're talking over someone. You're interrupting all of these these kind of ways of, tampening down her confidence and assertiveness whereas in a boy it's seen as especially a young white boy incipient leadership like oh you know he's dominating the group you know he might be a great team leader one day that's how we do it it's like me presenting in grad school I would always make the presentations like entertaining and like I have a certain way that I speak and like do the because it's academia. It was pretty boring. Like I tried to, you know, make it entertaining and I would always get an A plus, but then there was always the comment, like, maybe you could be a little more professional. And do you think, do you think a boy ever got that? Never. And, you know, if you look at studies of debate teams, debate, 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 my God, that is a frustrating thing to look at because, you know, girls are, points are taken off if girls don't present politely, if they're not dressed properly, if their hair isn't just so, if they're strident. What a fucking bad 80s word to use still today, <laughs> right? Strident, you know? <laughs> I had a guy tell me I was strident at a cocktail party I don't party even know recently. what that means. What does it mean? Oh, well, it just means you're forceful and difficult and feminist, like, you know. And he literally said to me, you, you know, well, you're quite strident. And I said, well, you're quite 80s. Like, what do you want me to tell you? <laughs> Like, seriously? Yeah. yeah. All I did was disagree with you. I even did it with a smile on my face because here we are at a cocktail party and I'm not supposed to be serious. I'm literally supposed to, like, be eye candy here. Oh, that's so funny. I'm just oh. in no mood. I'm just too old. I'm too old. Oh, I love it. So, okay, this was a great conversation. Where can people find you online? And also, do you have anything you're working on now that we can look forward to? Oh, well, thank you. So I have just handed in a manuscript for a book that is about kind of the bankruptcy of resilience narratives and lots of other things, but kind of how our ideas of identity and modernity have led us to this point of chaos and crisis and why it's just simply ridiculous to assume that people can personally resilience their way out of the fuckery. So that's what that book is about. Hopefully it will come back to me from my editor soon. You can find me on Twitter at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. And I also have an Instagram called Rage Becomes Her, which is the name of my first book. And when I write articles, which I haven't done recently because I've been writing this book, I usually share them like across social media. So Awesome. Yeah, but thank you for having me. It was delightful to talk to you. Thank you. 